0: The specials never stop at Blue Naples Pizza, and Italian restaurant. Every day, you get a large two-topping pizza for only $11.99. On Sunday, watch football and enjoy our large one-topping pizza and ten wings for only $17.99. Plus, lunch specials every day of the week. Blue Naples Pizza, and Italian restaurant. 1519 Union Cross Road in Kernersville. Charlotte, out of timeout. He's warning, the shot, Game over! He's
1: gonna get off, here he comes, here he comes, he's got him this time. It's gonna be a drag race, they
2: touch, they touch! Craven got him! Craven got him! By Lundquist, now Pana Garofsky with it. To the webbing! Still it's loose.
3: that by the Colton.
0: They it's over! The runner at
3: third, nobody out in the first and didn't score. Second and third, one out in the second and
0: didn't score. Smith, corks one into right, down the line! It may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! And the Cardinals have won the game!
4: Welcome to The Score. Here's your host, Brett Wiseman.
2: After a two-week hiatus, one due to Thanksgiving, one due to the fact that I came down with some form of the stomach flu, we're back. Uh, The Score with Brett Wiseman here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, tobaccoroadsportsradio.com. The show is not the only thing that's back. The other half of it that you might have missed over the past two months off and on, is the one and only james wilson everybody he's back Give a round of applause <laughs> thank you thank you i uh
1: i have been missing my time here on this show but i have been working on other projects for tobacco road hopefully we've got some big stuff coming for you guys not just with this show not just with my show but with pretty much everything uh going into 2022.
2: yeah james does host uh, a show called the pit stop and uh in february uh, that'll get back up and and running once <clears throat> Excuse me, once NASCAR gets back up and running, but we do have some things cooked up here for 2022 in the fact that this show is going live. Yes. Oh my God. As you may know, we are pre recorded, uh, but on January 7th, that changes, J Dub and Alex. We will go live uh, from our new Tobacco Road Sports Radio studios in Kernersville. And an undisclosed location in a deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, uh, underneath the brick and steel of a nondescript building, um, we won't tell you where it is. We will only tell you that it is in K-Vegas. That is all we will tell you. Um, but January seventh, from a in story building that says Tobacco Road Sports Radio on it, we're yes. not there. That's a different building. Yes. No. That's that's <laughs> that that's a front for the mafia. Is that's what our that sales is. headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By the way, uh, give us money. Um, But yes, Yes. we we, we will be going live on January 7th from 3 to 5. And then franchise players will follow live uh, from 6 to 8 uh, on WTOB. We will only be on Tobacco Road Sports Radio uh, until further notice. But (sighs) that being said, we have been off for two weeks because of Thanksgiving and family time, and then as a result of the family time, I ended up with some form of the stomach flu. I don't know what it was, Um, but that's beside the point. What we have missed is a lot of football. Like a lot of football, and a lot of happenings in the NFL that we need to address. Uh, First of all... um, you all have probably heard the news by now. The uh, shocking, tragic uh, death of former uh, Broncos wide receiver Demarius Thomas, uh, who also is an ACC alum, played at Georgia Tech. Um, said it was due to a medical issue from what I heard. So um, wanted to start off by uh, addressing that and getting our condolences out there. But uh, Jada, your Dallas Cowboys... There, you know, and Alex will exclude you from this because your Seahawks are pretty much out of it, but um, there is, in both conferences right now, there is a just a, a throng of involvement and it's just a crowded playoff race right now.
1: Yeah, I think Dallas is doing a really good job of doing what they've been doing my entire life where... Obviously, they're going to set extremely high expectations, whether it be within the organization or the fan base or just by the fact that you pull some big names onto your roster. And then you start off okay, right? Let's not forget Cowboys. I think it was just last year. Start off 3-0. and Then you're heading into Week 7, 3-3. and Not a good way to start off a season. Cowboys have – the Cowboys are the greatest team in the NFL at one thing, and I'll tell you what it is. It is setting – extremely high goals, and then finding a way to still disappoint you, even when you're at your lowest. Cowboys are not doing that this year, but they're still disappointing enough. I mean, 8-4 and is still not the greatest for what's supposed to be a Super Bowl world-beating team, and right now I just don't see it. I think the Cowboys are going to have to win out or maybe lose one more game for me to take them seriously again. They have one of the easiest rosters going into the back half of the season. Well, you know, back – third of the season they don't really play anyone that's great except for maybe arizona so i think if we're the cowboys are serious if they're supposed to be the super bowl winning organization you gotta win out or just lose to arizona maybe i could accept one more loss but seriously they're playing most of the other nfc east which is as we remember last year garbage there's really no excuses this year the roster's not unhealthy the coaching has finally gotten settled seriously there's literally no excuse for the dallas cowboys If they do not go at least to maybe the second round or at least have a really good fight in the first game of the playoffs, you have to start looking at a rebuild.
2: Yeah, and look, I said this from the get-go. If you want to be mediocre, you hire Mike McCarthy. I would know this. Uh, But (laughs) Washington and Philadelphia are, are, are starting to come on a little bit, so... I don't know that you could write those off as victories per se, but still, I think you control your own fate in the division and control your own, you know, destiny as as far as what seed you end up with. Um, But again, it's crowded. Uh, The Panthers still have a shot. Um, Their remaining schedule isn't all that favorable. Um, They fired Joe Brady over the bye week. Um, So we issued them a, a, a... what is it, Uh, a a de facto victory, I guess that's what we're calling it. They they won the bye week. Um, I think that was the right move. And I don't know if it's so much because of Cam Newton or just the fact that nothing in this offense was working all year, no matter – or since the start of last year, regardless of who was the quarterback. So – Hopefully, this brings Breeze a little bit of new life uh, into that offense. Um, but uh, remains to be seen uh, this week. But uh, the Panthers are not—they're not out of it, but the, it, it, it's slipping away, guys.
3: One thing for me with this Carolina Panthers team—and to first off say this game on Sunday at 1 p.m. the Panthers Falcons game might be the most meaningless NFL game this season. Not that Carolina or Atlanta is out of the playoffs, but it really has no implications on anything whatsoever. Nobody's worried about these two teams.
2: And this this game doesn't eliminate either of them either. Exactly.
3: So. exactly. And they just fired their offensive coordinator abruptly. And now with Christian McCaffrey out of the rest of the season, I don't see a, uh, a good skid for the rest of these games with Carolina.
1: I absolutely agree with you.
2: Yeah, it, it it's difficult to to kind of get a read on where things are. Look, they're five and seven. Yeah, they're 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 still in it. Um, they're favored in this game at home, but then you look at the schedule the rest of the season. You've got Tampa Bay twice. You've got Buffalo next week, who's not the Buffalo of last year, but still a pretty darn good team. And then you got the Saints in the Superdome uh, at the beginning of January. So not, not, not a not a favorable next last five weeks of the season here with a new offensive coordinator, um, a new interim offensive coordinator, no Christian McCaffrey, and still uncertainty as to who is the true starter. Is it Cam Newton or is it the, is it the two QB system?
3: I, one thing I do want to point out about Atlanta is they aren't. I feel like after ever since the Super Bowl where they lost in overtime to Tom Brady, it, it's been the same Atlanta Falcons team. It's the same exact team, and they just they have the ability to put up points and to be a good team, but they cannot finish drives. They're terrible in the red zone. They're have an aging quarterback. Calvin Ridley's out for personal reasons. Kyle Pitts isn't – they're not getting Kyle Pitts the ball, who they spent number four overall selection on.
2: And he was getting the ball a lot early on first half of the year, and that's just kind of fall off.
3: Exactly. and I, I think this is a great opportunity with Atlanta still able to make a playoff run. This is a big game for them. But like I said, this isn't like the best game on the slate for Sunday's football.
2: No, no, it's not. Um and yet, the
1: NFC South is still such a fun division to watch. I mean, it was like the NFC East of last year, except they don't suck as bad. I seriously really enjoy tuning into a Saints uh, Falcons game because I know that it doesn't matter. And yet, there are guys that are seriously going to put their lives on the line for a meaningless, meaningless game.
2: Yeah, it, it's a division game. <laughs> it's a ton and, of fun. And- it, it's a division game and regardless of of who you are and where you fall into the equation you know you you're, you're going to get up for for that uh divisional game um that being said talking about the bills um i don't think we will ever see again um a team throw three passes an entire game and get away with it with a victory but I don't know. As as much as I don't want to give Bill Belichick credit, because we all know how I feel about him, I loathe his entire existence. Um, look, I, I think he's solidifying himself as as potentially coach of the year because if you throw three passes an entire game and figure out how to stalwart a, a, a top ten offense. Granted, it was you know ungodly amount of wins, but still. That's 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 100% coaching.
3: I will say one thing about this that game that and, and not to take away anything from the Patriots' win streak, but that game said to me more about the Bills than it did about the Patriots. I could see that because you know, no offense to former Green Bay Packers safety Micah Hyde, but that press conference to me was very worrying because I I didn't think the I don't know if you guys have seen the press conference. Yeah, before. I have. I didn't even think the question was bad. The question was not bad. And they took it to the heart. They took it to the heart. And it was a perfectly, you know, rounded question because that is a great question. Why is it embarrassing to lose when you give up three passing attempts and they ran the ball 47, 50 times? So I think that they were overreacting and that could not saying to – uh, that the bills are in trouble or you know that there's something to worry about with them but that, that was not a good sign to see from your defense because it, it did uh, they did only allow 14 points but you know when when you see the Patriots run the uh, or run the ball 50 times pass the ball three times but then on the flip side Josh Allen's throwing the ball 40 times there's a problem there
2: yep yeah especially in in those conditions and it doesn't get any easier for them this week they've got Tampa, uh, at four twenty-five uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, and then Monday, Monday nighter Rams and Cardinals that very well could decide, uh, the NFC West, um, Arizona, one of three teams this weekend that can clinch, um, a playoff berth and, or a division championship. They can't clinch the West. Um, the other two teams can clinch their divisions. Um, the Cardinals win, they've got the berth, um, and then there's a, a myriad of other things that could happen, um, but y- y- you win, and uh, you got the playoff berth. Uh, Green Bay, if they beat the Bears on Sunday night, who get Justin Fields back, by the way, he's starting, um, the Packers can clinch if they win, Um The Saints lose or tie, and the 49ers lose or tie. Um, the the other two scenarios were dependent on the Vikings losing uh, the other night, which they almost found a way to blow a 29-point lead. Um, so the Packers need the Saints to lose and the 49ers to lose, or the Saints to lose and the Rams to lose and the 49ers to tie. Um, and the Buccaneers, they could clinch the NFC South. Uh, if the Saints lose and the Panthers lose. So, uh, we're, we're already in uh, playoff clinching uh, scenario territory. Uh, we're like going to... Earlier and earlier, right? It, it does. As, you know, things kind of start to get separated out. Especially, that's the other thing with, with the extra wild card is, you know, the teams that kind of separate themselves out um, have an opportunity to clinch earlier. Um, and. Granted, the NFC North is kind of terrible this year, but um, also congratulations to the Detroit Lions, everybody, for winning Absolutely. a football game. Just uh, so happy for Dan Campbell and uh, the entire city of Detroit um, for winning a football game. I know that's that's a difficult thing to do. Um, let's introduce something new here. Power Rankings. I don't know how many of you were prepared for this, but we're going to introduce power rankings to our program um, in most leagues. Um, The NFL is included in this. Um, It's difficult for me to say who the best team in the NFL is right now um, because there's a little bit of parity, but... um, I, I I've got to I've got to put Arizona at, at one, um, and I, I I think they're going to show a, a great deal when it comes to um, facing the Rams on Monday Night Football. They're going to got an opportunity to make a statement there. They're the one seeing in the NFC, a, a crowded NFC at that, with uh, Green Bay and Tampa at nine and three. Honestly. The way those three teams are playing right now, those are my one through three. Um, I know that's easy to say. Um, then I'd put New England at four. Um, I'd put Baltimore five. Uh, Dallas six. The Rams seven. Uh, Washington's in a playoff spot, by the way. They'll play Dallas this week. Uh, that should be fun. Uh, then I'll put KC eight. I'm not sold on them being completely back yet. Um I'll put the Chargers at nine, and uh, I'll put. I'll, I'm going to say it. I'll put Indianapolis at ten because I feel like they're on the come up.
3: Mm. I have yeah. a very different power ranking. <laughs> <laughs> a very different power rank. I mean, similar in a way. You know, I lot. I, I think Arizona for me is easily number one because. Uh, they had a few games where they didn't have Kyler Murray and they won, uh, I, th- I believe two of those or three of those games with Colt McCoy. I think it was two. And I mean, to me, that's just impressive. You can win games uh, ex- and division games. They beat Seattle in one of those games. If you can beat division opponents with a backup quarterback, uh, you- you're, you're going to win a lot of games. I think they've, they've set themselves up beautifully. They're a homegrown team I've been watching uh, them develop their players and, uh, become the team they are over the past couple of years as Seahawk fan, but yeah, they're number one for me. Your Packers, Brett, are number two for me. Unfortunately, uh, although they beat Arizona, uh, I believe was that one of the games where Kyler wasn't there. I, I can't remember if that's correct or
2: not. But uh, everybody was in for that game, but I still, right. I still am not sold on Green Bay being the better team overall Absolutely. than just on that one night. So.
3: So, to just kind of make it quicker, but I'll go Cardinals one, Packers two. Um, I'm putting the Patriots at three. Uh, I'm putting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at four. I am putting the uh, Kansas City Chiefs at five, the Dallas Cowboys at six, the Rams at seven, Colts at eight, uh, Bengals at nine, and Ravens at 10.
2: I don't know I, I, I just I don't know if I trust the Bengals enough at this point to put them in the top ten, but that 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 might change. Jw, what well, do you got? The
3: the Ravens for me right now. That's the one one team I have problems. The the Bengals I I I can you know agree
2: to. I, I I've heard this point made and I agree with it completely. We trust Lamar Jackson, we don't trust the rest of the Ravens. Right. <laughs>
3: that and the fact that they are the most injured team in the NFL without a doubt. They have had the most injuries this season. They I mean they
2: lost they lost their entire running back room before the se- the season started.
3: Absolutely. So they're
2: already behind the eight ball in that aspect. Um but yeah, we 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 trust Lamar Jackson. We just don't trust the rest of the team. Especially think- with running backs they've plucked off the street.
1: Right. And, that, and that's part of that's exactly like why I don't necessarily believe in Baltimore is that when I watch them play there, this 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 feeling of their game looks the most susceptible to a fluke game or maybe even three or four a season than any other team. You know, when you watch Kansas City, Green Bay, even New England with their young quarterback, you can see like, oh, they can consistently win. And it would take so much going wrong for them to just absolutely have a terrible game and have someone just steamroll them, whether it was effort or not. When yeah, you I look think at Baltimore, it's like, oh my god.
3: I I agree too. I, I I for me and you know this may be you know disrespectful. I don't care. I'm already counting the Ravens out. I don't care if they make the playoffs. I, I'm counting them out already, just because you can't. As crazier things have happened, but you you cannot. Make a big run in the playoffs, especially with how the AFC's, you know—getting better. With that injured of a roster, you can't do it. Right.
2: It's so depleted, and at this time of year, it gets it gets more and more amplified. And and we've seen it from their perspective. You know, you can't rely on Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews forever. Other people are going to have to step up. And JW mentioned it. New England, even with the rookie quarterback. When you have the number one scoring defense, that 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 can carry you. Okay, we we've seen that with the Ravens uh, twenty some odd years ago. Who who'd they have at quarterback? Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl with basically a placeholder at quarterback. It, I mean, it it it, it can happen.
4: And, right. and not
3: not to stay on the Ravens for too long, but another thing for me is is I, I see a very similar situation as i did as i've seen in green bay and brett you could also chime in on this is that aaron Rodgers has had decent receivers of the year but over the past few years they've been struggling to get him weapons besides devontae adams of course and aaron jones uh, with the Baltimore, it's sort of the same thing. They have struggled to bring in weapons for Lamar Jackson, except for J.K. Dobbins, who's injured, and Mark Andrews, who really seems like their only weapon in Baltimore.
2: He they is their it. only weapon right now, they had as stint, of this moment.
3: They had a stint with Des Bryant, I believe. it Was that one or two years ago? They, yes. they, they, yeah. they drafted Rashad Bateman, yep. who has yep. not really shown me much this season. So they really just need to bring in some weapons for Lamar, just as they need to do in Green Bay.
2: Yeah, and look, I'm not sold on... Lamar Jackson can only carry you so far. As dynamic as he is, I'm not sold on him taking you to the promised land, especially as crowded as that AFC is. J-Dev, real quick, give us your top ten.
1: Yeah, so I am... I hate to say it, I'm pretty much not going to surprise anybody. At number one, I've got Arizona. At number two, I've got the Green Bay Packers. Those two teams have been playing extremely well. When you look at the, the games that they have been able to lose on their schedules, you, it's an understandable loss, and it's not something that makes me lose faith in the organization. At number three, I'm going to have to put the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I don't see how you can't believe in them. Um, look at how they played last year. They had some bad, bad games. And uh, Tom Bird even said that literally as he had the Lombardi in his hands. So I hate to say it, when you could talk about how poorly you played at points in your season with the Lombardi freaking trophy in your hands, I tend to believe in you as an NFL superstar. Number five, I have the Kansas City Chiefs, and I truly believe in how bad the Patriots will end up being in the playoffs. So number six, I'm going to put the New England Patriots. Then I've got the Los Angeles Rams, which it's funny going into preparation mode for this morning. So many people were putting this team far lower than where they're truly at. I just don't see how you can't believe in them. Then finally, I'm going to put my own Dallas Cowboys on there. Just don't believe in them as much as I believe in the Rams. I think they've been rejuvenated with a new quarterback. Uh, Some of the players who we stopped believing in, um, in Los Angeles and including the coaching, I kind of stopped believing them as an organization, but that's mainly because I cannot stand Jared Goff as an NFL player. Um, I kind of just believe in them now, and I feel like the team is rejuvenated. What are we at? Number seven, I will have to put the Chargers. Justin Herbert, I understand. The record's not the greatest young quarterback. They will come up, and I do think they will make the playoff. And then number eight, Titans. And then number 12, the Bills. I know the Bills have an absolutely atrocious record. I get it. Seven and five is literally one of the worst records you could have to be top ten in someone's power rankings. I like them. I think the coaching is good. I like Allen. I think he's going to win an MVP award probably maybe next year. He hasn't been playing well enough to be in consideration for that. Then I'm going to have to go with the Colts. And then this one might surprise you guys. I think the Eagles are really going to have a come up and that will round out my top 10. I think the Eagles actually, they might win the NFC East this year. And I know that sounds absolutely insane considering where the records are at and how bad things will have to go for Dallas and how good things will have to go for Philadelphia, but we have seen stranger things, even
2: in that division. We, we have, and this is going to be really, really fun down the stretch. Uh, you know what else is going to be fun? College football playoff and bowl season. Uh, we'll recap what we've seen the past couple of weeks and what we've missed uh, from our hiatus uh, in college football. And we'll, we'll preview things. Uh, Going forward, did the committee get the seating right? We'll talk about all that more next here on The Score. Stick around. Back here on The Score with Brett Wiseman on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brett Wiseman alongside Alex Wober and James Wilson this morning. Uh, Fellas, the way the CFP shook out... um, Look, and let, let me just say that Michigan made its statement not with the Big Ten Championship, but they made their statement against Ohio State. They, they, they staked their claim in that game, period. That was going to be a playoff elimination game. We went into that thinking that and knowing that to some degree. And that's what it ended up being. Um, Ohio State ends up as one of the first two out. So, Um, other things, you know, I think you and I, Alex, and a lot of other people were hoping for chaos, and we came literally an inch from that. Literally. Oklahoma State came an inch from putting their name into the party, because here's what I said going into this. I told a lot of people this. Oklahoma State, if they were to have beaten Baylor, would have had two top 10 wins in two weeks. That Their loss to Iowa State would have been ignored. You have a one-loss conference champion that's beaten two top 10 teams that 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 that's a pretty darn good resume to put up there but that didn't happen now Baylor ends up in the New Year's Six Bowl and Oklahoma State goes where I don't know I'm about to look that up but that needed to happen to to shake everything up Oklahoma State lost and from you know 3:30 on throughout that championship Saturday we kind of knew where everyone was going. We knew we knew who was in. We didn't know what the seating was going to end up being. That was going to be determined by the Alabama Georgia result, uh, which ended up ha- having two spots gone.
3: Well, the uh, I I just found the ball. Oklahoma State will be playing Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. Okay, that'll be fun. That'll be a good game. Uh, just, overall, I think the CFP has gotten the top four right for the first time in a while. It's been a couple of years. I thought like the, you could you know swap out a team or you know put this team in there or whatever.
1: Like Texas a uh, and last year.
3: Yeah, like one of those. You know, a lot of people were saying like Oklahoma State this year, if that it was, if Alabama were to lose or Notre Dame, but. Uh, I think they got it right this year. I think this is going to be a really good college football playoffs. You know, I, I'm going to be pulling hard for Cincinnati coming from App State. Uh, I'm also going to be pulling hard for Michigan because they're the first team to ever make the college football playoffs being unranked before the season started. So to me, that is an incredible feat uh, by Michigan. And they're, they're riding the hot seat right now. I mean, that game, Michigan, Georgia, I mean, of course, Alabama, Cincinnati, Should be a decent game, but this Michigan-Georgia game, that's really what I'm going to be focused on, Uh, and that's why it's got the 730 uh, slot. This game is going to be the – I think whoever wins that game is going to win the college football playoffs.
2: Look, I don't think – and a lot of people have told me that I'm wrong for this. We can't assume that we're going to get an Alabama-Georgia rematch in the national championship game. Because, A, so much has happened in this season of college football that is unpredictable, that is just flat-out nuts. So many things have happened that we did not foresee. Like a group of five team finally breaking the proverbial glass ceiling and getting into the top four. Cincinnati's in the darn thing. Okay, they're, they're, they're in it now. So the, the, the questions are over. The committee has put a group of five team in. Okay, now from Cincinnati's perspective, you're playing Alabama who just put up 40 points on the greatest defense of our generation. You You, you got your chance to make a statement right now. I'm not saying they will, but I'm not putting it out of the realm of possibility like some people are.
1: I do want to congratulate Cincinnati um, more so than anything. Uh, Currently, I've been mentoring a a really close friend. She's a senior in high school. She's looking at um, colleges, and it's funny to me because the two colleges she has, number one and two, are Cincinnati and Michigan. Um, I would have loved to have seen them play to each other in the first round to kind of duke it out. That would be hilarious, but Cincinnati, power five, Um, No more. I really think you're going to have to start seeing that. And ideally, what I'd like to see, um, especially for someone who probably watches maybe one to two college football games uh, a week, I don't really watch a lot of them. I, I, I tend to focus more on professional athletics and tend to specialize in other things. I would love to see the group of five versus power five whole debate kind of come to an end. If you could have a shuffling of conferences somehow, some way, that would put talent and spread it across the United States and give more smaller teams opportunities to play bigger teams later into the season for games that really mattered. You might start to see teams like Appalachian, Cincinnati, um, a couple other Sunbelt schools. If you shuffled them around, you might actually start to see something really truly good. Um, and that's always been my biggest problem with college football is, is the power five versus group of five. I, I, I hate that debate. I think it ruins the aspect um, oh yeah, you're D1, but you're power five, but you're not group of five, but you're this, but you're that, or excuse me, you're group of five. But if you could shuffle that around and really fix what to me has been the ultimate issue with college football, it might make something
2: that's already very good even better. And playoff expansion, is it going to guarantee that, quote, everybody gets a seat at the table, so to speak, um, because you still have, biases at play that 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 make an impact. And I like your point. It's it's just it's not gonna change. Uh, even though you've got like five or six um, American schools that are going to the Big Twelve that become power fives, you've got conference USA schools who have five or six that are going to the American that go to the top tier group of five conference. And then you've got um Teams that are moving up from FCS, one go into the Sun Belt and two go into Conference USA. So, and there's a very real possibility that Marshall and um, Old Dominion will join the Sun Belt beginning next year. So, look, the Sun Belt very well could be the best group of five conference in college football come two years from now when the top two program at FCS. James Madison moves up. So, but that's that that's that's beside the point. That's a different story for a different day. Look. If Alabama proved anything in their win over Georgia, it's this. That while Georgia might be the best defense of our generation, there's a way to beat them and it's to barrage them with passing.
3: Something that I saw, not to cut you off, Brett, something I saw in that, and I said this to my father before the game started, and I truly believe this when you're playing against a defense like Georgia. Georgia has, without a doubt, the best front seven in the college football. That's no question. Alabama has one of the best offensive lines in college football. So what it came down to for me was who has the better quarterback, who has the better weapons, who's going to be able to score more points. Because to me, the obvious choice there is Alabama. You take the Heisman front runner or uh, Georgia's quarterback, Stetson Bennett, I think. That to me was the selling point on Alabama that game, was that they're going to outplay this team offensively.
2: And, and, and I think from – from Georgia's perspective, you you didn't think that you went into that kind of assuming that you had you had the defense to beat. you had this generational otherworldly defense and when you go into it as an Alabama as the underdog for the first time, like you know ever, um, you feel a little bit slighted and that I feel like had a lot to play with it as well. I agree but I, I do think from from where things stand in in terms of the question of did the committee get the seating right I think they did and no there's no oh they're gonna try and avoid an Alabama Georgia rematch in in the first in the semifinal that didn't matter okay it shouldn't matter and it wasn't going to matter. Um, Cincinnati was the fourth best team over Notre Dame um, who gets Oklahoma State, as Alex told you, in the Fiesta Bowl um, on New Year's Day. They beat Notre Dame head-to-head. There's your deciding factor. Um, Alabama beat the consensus, unanimous, number one team in the country. Therefore, they should assume that spot And they do. Uh, Michigan throttled uh, who the committee viewed for a lot of the year as a top five team. I mean, obliterated them in not too favorable weather conditions. And then throttled a two-loss Iowa team in the Big Ten championship game. They should be the two. Georgia, naturally at that point, would become the three. Um I, I I think they got the seeding right. And the only question after that Alabama-Cincinnati result was, okay, if Michigan does what they need to do against Iowa, they're going to be two. If not, they're going to be three, and Georgia's going to be two. Regardless, they were going to play each other. That had pretty much been decided.
3: I think one thing that people were discussing amongst the rankings was Michigan
2: at one, which I didn't you, 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 you could make the case, but I just didn't think that was look right. I, the I, I, the, the I, Alabama Georgia result decided that Alabama beat so. the consensus unanimous number one and the manner in which they did it eventually put them, I think over Michigan. It wasn't just that they beat Georgia. It was that they beat Georgia as handily and scored as many points and put up as many yards in doing so as they did
3: right and and another thing with that is I think the the Michigan number one was one thing I saw and this one was just I I did not agree with it but I could see where they would do it because of ratings views and money uh, putting Ohio State at four uh, to have Michigan Ohio State Alabama Georgia I, I saw that Did not agree with it because uh, I instantly smelled uh, a business and money decision, uh, if that were to be the case. But thankfully, they got it right. They put Cincinnati in there, uh, and it it should be a great college football playoffs.
2: Let's welcome Michael Davis into this now. Um, Michael, we've kind of been discussing, did the committee get the seating right? Um, And... We can't assume an Alabama-Georgia rematch because Cincinnati and Michigan are are new players at the table, and Cincinnati's broken that proverbial glass of five ceiling, group of five ceiling, group of five glass ceiling. Okay, there we go. Sorry, I had a stroke. Um, Michigan's a new player here in terms of a power five, and Jim Harbaugh's finally gotten over that hump. Okay, now what?
0: Yeah, so my initial reaction to the college football playoff rankings was we're going to see an Alabama-Georgia rematch. I think that's what the committee wants. Um, It was very interesting not putting Alabama and Georgia in the semifinals to see who would make it to the national championship game. Michigan has surprised everyone, including myself. I didn't expect Jim Harbaugh to actually beat Ohio State and to run the table like they have. And for
2: a Michigan team that for once was unranked in the preseason poll, they are the first team to make the college football playoff unranked in any preseason poll. Uh, that just it, it, it proves the unpredictability that has been college football in 2021.
0: And give credit to Jim Harbaugh for taking a team that was unranked and using them. And coaching them to this point in the season, that is that is remarkable. I'm I'm almost at a loss for words with how Jim Harbaugh has done it. Because once they beat Ohio State and beat Ohio State like they did, it wasn't even close. You're like, Oh, okay. And to me, with the way Michigan handled Ohio State, that's more impressive than the way that Alabama handled Georgia. Um but I'm still expecting to see a Bama and Georgia rematch in the college football uh, national championship. I
3: agree too, Mike. I, I want to see that because, to me, and I don't, I can't speak for others, but that was a top five football game I have ever seen in my life. That college, it was the best college football playoff I've ever watched, and I, I would love to see that happen again.
0: And I wasn't surprised because. Alabama was backed in a corner. Like, if they lost that game to Georgia, then they're out of the college football playoff. They're playing in some bowl game that nobody cares about. Like, they needed that game more than Georgia. Like, Georgia was pretty much already set into the four. But Nick Saban was like, hey, guys, it's go big or go home. And to Crimson Tide's credit, they went big. They went big or they
2: they go home. And you said it, that they they went big. All right, we got to get in the break here. We'll get to the rest of the bowl games uh, later on in the program. Uh, When we come back, Steve Wiseman will join us to talk. uh, He is the man as far as the Duke Blue Devils go. He'll talk their coaching search uh, for a new head football coach um, and uh, where things stand as far as hoops go as we enter uh, the extended uh, biggest ever uh, ACC schedule when we come back here on the score back here on the score with Brett Wiseman on tobacco and sports radio tobacco and sports radio.com Brett Wiseman alongside James Wilson yes once again Michael Davis joining us and for this segment Steve Wiseman is here uh, from the Raleigh News and Observer to talk um Duke's football coaching search uh where things stand as far as Duke Hoops are concerned, which has been an awfully impressive start for them as they enter ACC play. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to ask you, how on God's green earth did Jason Garrett become a candidate for Duke head football coach?
4: <laughs> well, he's interested in the job, first of all. So um, he has some pretty strong ties to Duke, even though he played at Princeton and he and then he's never coached the, in college football at all. Um, but he's pretty close with, with coach K actually. Um, While he was the Cowboys coach, he and Tony Romo um, came to a Duke basketball game one time and, and they would hang around and, and, uh, you know, watch Duke practice and kind of, you know, hang out and learn what coach K does, like trying to learn from, you know, one of the best coaches in the, you know, that we've ever had or whatever in sports. And then a few years ago, Coach K took his staff down to the star at Frisco um, during the basketball offseason. I think it was during training camp or a mini camp. I can't remember exactly, but anyway, it was um, to, to kind of watch what the Cowboys do and kind of what their outfit, you know, what their, what their situation is. And um, so there's a connection there. And um, uh, so, you know, Duke wants somebody with a background who understands high level academics because that's, the world you have to recruit in you can't go out and get five-star guys and just fill your roster with them you have to have to you know uh, manage your way through through that aspect of it so Garrett click you know checks that box because of his Princeton background and his dad coached at Columbia but um, his lack of college experience I think is probably the biggest drawback here but I but I did
2: I do know that he is he's made a push to get involved in this for sure so so he's made a push. And the, the interest, I, I take it, is mutual. And, you know, this is a search that you said midway through the week, Duke felt like, okay, we, we, we've got our, our pick of the litter now. We know who our guy might be. Um, we don't yet uh, as of this recording. So where do things stand right now?
4: Yeah, because, you know, the Tony Elliott situation turned out to be a curveball that nobody saw coming. Um, he, uh, from Clemson, the, the, the offensive coordinator at Clemson, just to make that clear to everybody, um, he interviewed with Duke on Sunday and kind of left them with the impression that, that he was really interested in that job and maybe more so than Virginia, but, but Tony Elliott is, um, is a very deliberative guy. I know I've learned that from talking to people at Clemson and, you know, he was in uh, his major was industrial engineering. He was an academic all ACC. He worked in the in the private sector as an engineer for a couple of years before he got back into coaching. Just to give you that background. So he, um, you know, he he looks at everything from every angle, like like an engineer would, right? So that that's where we are. And so he, you know, he went to Virginia, um, and everybody thought, okay, he's flying up there. This deal's about to be done. You know, he's taking his family. Surely they're going to hammer out a deal and get this over with. And then uh, he came back <laughs> on Thursday afternoon um, without without a signed deal or anything. And uh, again, we're as we talk here as we record this, uh, he's still deciding whether he wants to keep going with Virginia or revisit Duke again and get reengaged with them. And Duke is kind of you know on hold, kind of waiting to see what he does now. You know, he's not. I haven't been told he's their number one choice, like far and away. But the fact that they're kind of, you know, waiting to see what happens with him tells you how much they think of him. So, um, you know, Mike Elko is another choice from um, the defense coordinator at Texas A&M who formerly was at Wake Forest and, and Notre Dame. Spent a lot of time working for Dave Clawson. Um, so th- that's that's appealing because look at what Clawson's done. He's the ACC coach of the year. So someone from his tree would be good.
2: I, I think that ACC connection would lead me to believe that, he's the guy but as you said um there is a, a, a certain level of okay higher academic standing higher academic knowledge uh has has a lot of weight especially at a school like duke
4: yeah now mike elko has a can check that box too he played football at penn in the ivy league so um again there's the background you want and just have to say this duke's president vince price came to Duke from Penn. Okay. So not that he's like a hundred percent involved in the search. He's kind of leaving it to Nina King, the AD and, and art chase the sport administrator. But, but again, that's just another thing that makes Elko, you know, have some attraction because uh, he's got that Ivy league background. So another guy they talked to is air force head coach, uh, Troy Calhoun, uh, who's been out there and, you know, he's got them in a bowl game for the 11th time in 15 years this year. You don't think that sounds attractive to a place like Duke? Absolutely. So, um, again, you know, he's used to dealing with academic restrictions at Air Force, right? So um, that that would be somebody they could they might turn to.
2: Yeah, and look, it's difficult for me to say who among those three. Of course, I think Mike Elko personally is the better choice because of that ACC background, but it's not out of the realm of possibility to say that the other two are any lesser of, of a quality candidate.
4: Right. And they feel like they've got, they've got a pretty good pool here that they're going to end up with a really good coach. I, I know that for a fact. So um I thought, and I was, you know, the way it was going that they would maybe have a press conference as soon as today is what it looked like earlier in the week. And then again, you know, at that point it looked like Virginia was going to hire Anthony Poindexter, right. From uh, Penn state, the former uh, Virginia player, and that fell apart. Uh, so that put Elliot back in mix with Virginia. He went up there and spent a couple of days. So that pushed things back. So we'll see. Um, signing days next week. Um, so they obviously want to have somebody in place before the 15th. And I still think, you know, before the weekend's out, we're going to know who Duke's coach is.
2: Now, who do you think it'll be? Well, um,
4: you know, I was leaning toward Elliot earlier in the week, and I still have a feeling about him. But the more he kind of meanders with what he's doing, he may end up just staying at Clemson, you know? And that would take him out of the out of the equation. So um, I think at that point, they probably turned to Elko.
2: Yeah, I, I do think uh, Mike Elko, I, I think he's going to be the guy. I, I think he has to be the guy because of that, that ACC background plus... Uh, that, that higher academic standing that he played uh, football uh, in the Ivy League. Uh, let's talk Duke Coops for a second. Um, as we get into ACC play, this is a team that has impressed uh, to a degree that I, I, I honestly didn't think was, was quite this possible.
4: yes um you know again coming off last season when they didn't make the tournament and everything you know didn't really know what to expect right when they come into this season we knew they had you know Paula banquero who was expected to be one of the top picks in the draft but you know that was the case last year with jalen johnson everybody thought he was going to be this guy and he wasn't but banquero has proven to be that he's he's got an nba game especially on offense and um so that that's a good piece to build around. Uh, they weren't a very good defensive team at all last year; uh, terrible at, at points. And the year before that, they were probably you know mediocre defensively. But now they are pretty strong, and uh, uh, they've got big guys in the middle: Mark Williams and Theo John uh, to, to protect the rim. Uh, Trevor Keels has turned out to be you know, just kind of a madman out there. Um, He's, he's, you know, a strong defender. He's not shooting very well right now. We can talk about that more, but, but he's, he's pretty solid guy. He could play defense and, and, uh, and change things on that end of the court. So, you know, that win over Gonzaga was, was impressive. It's going to, you know, it's going to be great capital to have going forward. It shows that they can play uh, and, and beat, you know, anybody in the country. And I know they lost the last game to Ohio State, so it left them with a bad taste going into this break. But but uh, they've got a lot of tools, and uh, they're they're gonna they're gonna be a factor here uh, throughout the season.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you said it. Uh, Paulo Bancaro was expected to be that guy, and as Jalen Johnson was last year, and he was not didn't end up being as such. Um, but. Now Paulo Bancaro is that guy, but the other thing is they've got a lot of people around him that are also making an impact, and we saw that I think more so in the Gonzaga game than we have in any other to this point, for
4: sure. Because you know Banquerro, you know had that cramping issue again and and missed long. He only scored one point in the second half. He had twenty in the first half and one point in the second half. So um, other people had to step up. Wendell Moore. Has made such an improvement from last year to this year. It's just dramatic. Um, he's more consistent. He's uh, he's stronger going stronger with the ball, stronger going you know, through traffic at the rim, and you know. Whereas before he might take a little contact that, that wouldn't be called a foul and would throw up a bad shot or whatever, throw him off or, or turn the ball over, and now he he plays through that contact. And, and he, you know, can, can can get the hoop and get the add one or whatever happens with it. He just looks like a much better player, and you know he's a junior now, and he feels more like he's got a voice among the team. He's a, he's a captain. Um, you know, people poo poo that stuff, but uh, you know it matters when you're in when you're in a huddle, and or you're on the court, and somebody's got to step up and say something. And he's he's found that voice that he really didn't have the first two years because he really wasn't playing consistently well now. He seems to be, I mean, he's, he's already produced a triple double this year. He's, he's up there in points, assists and, and rebounds, you know, every night. And um, I don't see any reason that's going to tail off. I know that they're getting ready to play better teams, you know, after they get done with non-conference here, but, uh, but he'll, he'll be there all year. And that's, that's a, that's another somebody else on the team they needed besides Ben Caro
2: Right. They, they, they needed that size. And, and we, uh, I, I've talked about it time and time again with you on here how big a difference that was going to make and almost now you, you almost have a plethora of it now.
4: Yeah. Yeah. With Mark Williams and Theo John in the middle, you know, last year, uh, in fact, you know, you know, kind of ripped on Jalen Johnson there for not being much of a player and he wasn't, but he was hurt a little bit and he didn't have the supporting cast around him that this, this group does because Mark Williams, uh, came in as a freshman and had to adjust to college basketball, which is very tough. And he didn't have the, the offseason, you know, because of the pandemic, right? They didn't have the work they could do. And he didn't have anybody in practice to work against him every day. Uh, when well they brought in Theo John as a grad transfer from Marquette, here's a guy who's 6'9", 240, uh, who started the last three years playing in the Big East. So look at that experience he's got, right? And um, so Mark, in, in practice, bangs with him every day and then knows he can go out in the game and give it his all for five, six minutes, whatever it takes. And they're going to sub out and put Theo John in there and give Mark a, a rest, and they don't have much of a drop off as far as play when John comes in. So they've got kind of a two-headed monster there, and and that makes a big difference. I mean, that's
2: that's a, a a huge improvement over what they had last year. It exactly, and in my mind, I feel like this makes it makes Duke the favorite in the ACC, especially after seeing what. Virginia ended up doing against James Madison, which was loose. Um, Look, I I just don't see, I don't see anybody in the ACC except maybe a Carolina NC State's been kind of impressive to this point. Um, When you look at the big four, Wake Forest has also been- Wake Forest has been impressive. James Wilson, Syracuse, Orange. Um,
1: Maybe not, but I can dream,
2: (laughs) right? (laughs) You you can dream. Um, There's always an opportunity there because it's Syracuse. But look, this is, I'm not going to say it's weak, but this is not as strong an ACC as we've seen in years past. And I think almost certainly Duke is, is the runaway favorite right now
4: only team ranked right now and that the only team that should be ranked frankly uh, that's that's the way it is. I do see Carolina I mean their last couple of performances have been a lot better. I think they learned some lessons going up and getting pounded by uh, by Purdue and then losing that game to Tennessee um, uh, last month and and they'll get better they have talent and they'll in the end the Duke Carolina games are going to matter as far as who wins the ACC I think there's no doubt about that Virginia's taken a significant step back there's no doubt about that. And uh so that hurts the top of the conference. Florida State, you always have to, you know, factor in there because Leonard Hamilton's got them to the point where they're gonna be in the in the mix every year. And then um, you know, Louisville to a certain extent, uh has some upside. Syracuse, James, I'll you know, I do think they have upside. Uh that loss to Colgate is gonna is gonna hurt as <laughs> we bruise all year on their resume, but absolutely you
1: can <laughs> them. And they play them like every year at the beginning of the year, and it's they go like five hundred.
4: Yeah, uh, but but that said, I trust Beheim to get his team better as the year goes on. And so they could still end up being a, a tournament team. But, but to the overall point of what we're talking about here, this is not a classic ACC year where you've got, you know, you think about just as recently as 2019, the conference had three number one seeds in the NCAA tournament and produced the national champion in Virginia. That's not going to happen this year. That's not going to happen at all.
2: No, and you said it. The The Duke Carolina games, we we know how they ended up last year. Um, this year they're going to mean a lot more and they're going to sound a lot different. Um, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about before we let you go. Um, what has it been like? We, we asked you what you thought it was going to be like uh, a, a few weeks ago. What has it been like for you? to be back in a full capacity Cameron Indoor.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. I mean, it's been, it's been better than it, it really made you realize what we missed last year and how, you know, just freaking bizarre it was to just use that phrase. Um, uh, it, it wasn't covering sports. It was not, it wasn't the sports like we know it and I, it's the best we could do under the circumstances. So that's the way it is. But you know, Uh, having, you know, a full throated, uh, camera crazies behind us and, and, uh, sitting on our backs as, as we do our work and they cheer the team, um, literally on our backs is, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and when, you know, when the team gets going and gets on a big run, you know, the energy in that building is something special. And, but I have to say not only that, but being in the garden when they played Kentucky kind of felt that
2: way again, that was the first game of the year. And, and, it like, and Vegas too. It, well, yes, i was Vegas. That. Uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to jump no, in there, no, but cool. <laughs> uh, um, so it sounded like Duke brought a lot of their fans to Vegas. But again, that's, that's Gonzaga territory. When, when you think about it. And that was the largest crowd to see a basketball game in the city of Las Vegas, the state of Nevada overall yep. period ever. Yep. And that's right.
4: And, uh, and, you know, Coach K and Mark Few both give a shout out to Tark saying, I can't believe we did something Tark couldn't do, right? But but they did. They have a nice arena to play in is, is why probably. But anyway, um it Yeah, was they had probably, an NHL
2: arena to play in. But.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 a pro arena. But listen, it was probably 60-40 Duke and that place was full. And uh as far as this the fan split. And uh, you know, even Mark Few said after the game. You know, it's not like we're across the street. It's it's over a thousand miles to Spokane from <laughs> Las Vegas, but um, they do. You know, it's the West Coast, and they play games in Vegas. They were there all week. You know, they played UCLA as well. Uh, but it was it was a really it, it felt like a Final Four in, in that type of building, um, with that kind of energy in the crowd, and uh, in November for um, a fan base to to get up and get loud when their team needs a defensive stop. Uh, when you feel a, a run coming those are things you don't normally get you know in a neutral site game that early in the year and you get it more in march or at the ACC tournament uh, march that's you know or at march madness too uh so that that was really cool it really i I walked out of thinking this was something it was cool to be part of it
2: yeah and and that game as you said had a final four atmosphere one more thing Wh- which of these three games do you think we'll have a bigger Final Four impact? Gonzaga-UCLA, Gonzaga-Duke, or UCLA-Villanova? Um, of the three marquee games that we've seen to this point.
4: Right. I'm going to say Gonzaga-Duke because I'm not sure UCLA is as good as they were last year, um, and I'm not, I'm not sure they're a certain Final Four team. I think they're a step below
2: and I th- I, I think else. that eking it out against Villanova and what ended up happening against Gonzaga I I think proves that
4: yeah yeah Gonzaga is is top notch I mean they they pass the ball well they're a good shooting team you know that that game was you know three point game right down to the wire and uh, either one could have won it and that that is it those are two teams that that could meet again in in the final four no question about it.
2: I think that's a possibility Steve thanks so much for joining us once again this morning we really really appreciate it as always yep good to be with you take care all righty when we come back we'll kick off our second hour of programming the world's number one Hornets fan James Wilson finally gets to talk about the Hornets here on the score Back here on the score with Brett Wiseman on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com joined alongside Michael Davis, and uh, you may remember him as the world's number one Hornets fan. That's James Wilson. Um, J Dub, it's difficult to say where this Hornets team stands right now um, with half the roster basically still in protocol. Uh, but. They've beaten the best team in the Eastern Conference once this year. They've beaten the best team in the Western Conference once this year. They've also lost to the worst team in the Eastern Conference and the worst team in the Western Conference. So it's it it it's same old, same old in that regard, right?
1: Absolutely. You have to realize that, one, your mic is muted when you start talking. But two, you have to realize this is the same old, same old Charlotte Hornets team. There is probably going to never be a day in which the Hornets do not play Thanos and go perfectly balanced, as all things should be. That was a Hornets meme a few years ago. Because honestly and truly, we had quite possibly... One of the toughest first halves and then the easiest back half. Uh, Last year, I'd say it was the other way around. We had a really easy back half. We were getting young. So we didn't really get to capitalize on that easy first half as much as we should have. This year, again, I'm going to take a. um, I'm probably going to say that we have the easiest back half of the season in the schedule. One of my favorite websites for your ultra, ultra, ultra NBA nerds. And I believe you can get this. um, Yeah, you can get this for your top four sports. Is called Tankathon, and one of my favorite things to look at is remaining strength of schedule. Currently, and you want your number to be higher, um, meaning you have an easier schedule left in your season. Currently, the Los Angeles Lakers are ranked number one, meaning they have the hardest schedule um, left in the season. Uh, The Clippers, number two, basically a a tie. And again, we want a higher number, meaning you're going to have an easier schedule. The Hornets are ranked twenty-seven that's awesome. That means we've played some of the world-beating teams. We've had to get buzzsawed, and I was, I was actually um, discussing this with some very elderly fans who actually surprised me to have been obsessive Hornets fans at their age. Usually when you're that age, uh, you're going to be watching college ball. So yeah, the Hornets have one of the easiest schedules left, and according to Tankathon, these are going to be our easiest matchups, and this is how many of them we get. We get to play the Pistons three more times. We get to play the Magic uh, two more times we get to play the Pelicans two more times, which I cannot wait for. We get to play the Thunder two more times. We get to play the Rockets once more, and then we also get to play the Spurs twice more. So that is fantastic. But on the other hand, we have to play Phoenix twice, we have to play Utah twice, Brooklyn twice, uh, Chicago twice, which I definitely think we can at least split that. Milwaukee three times, which
2: I'm not actually that worried about. And then the lowly Miami as well as well times. as it's as well as the Hornets played against Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, games I didn't uh, necessarily were able to, to finish off, but Absolutely. Milwaukee, they led by double digits for a lot of that first half. Uh, Chicago, um, they that was tight-knit right there in, until the fourth quarter, so can't write those off. Well, the
1: thing is with the Hornets is that we're still a building team. Teams like Chicago, they have new talent on the roster, but it's not talent that needs to um, still continue to develop. DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, some of the newer additions to the franchise, those are guys who should be game ready, right? I don't expect Kai Jones to be game ready, and that kind of brings me to my next point about the Charlotte Hornets. For the past three years, with the combination of Mitch Kupchak and James Borrego, and obviously it's, it's going to be a little bit biased because this is a team I focus on. I'm, I consider myself the biggest Hornets fan in at least Winston-Salem. The Charlotte Hornets have made the best use of the G League, and it's kind of sad when you look at G League attendance. Even though they're merely a town away from me, I've literally never been to a Swarm game. Uh, And Greensboro barely goes, but you can actually see some well-established NBA talent if you were lucky enough to go. uh, LeAngelo Ball was there as well as his celebrity dad, LeVar Ball. So you could see some awesome talent. And that shows when you look at how many games your younger guys are played. JT Thor has only had five appearances. Um, And he, he, I don't want to say he impressed. Um, The scoring was actually the thing that I thought would be the weak point for him. But when you look at his NBA statistics, that was actually his strongest point. Obviously, only 2.6 games um, with only 10 minutes um, appearances. Uh, Kai Jones has six appearances along with Vernon Carey's one appearance in the NBA so far. So when you look at that level of balance where you're sending a guy down to Greensboro, you're calling him up uh, when it matters or when we need bodies on the floor, you're kind of allowing them to continue to do what they did in college, get good, develop their strength, be strong at what they're used to, but then you can kind of have that reality set in by saying, all right, we're going to bring you back up to the NDA. You better be ready. You're not playing freaking Epe Udo for 40 minutes. You're playing LeBron James. You're playing Kawhi Leonard. You're playing a world-beating absolute monster of a player that we're going to look back on a hundred years from now. So when you get to do that to these guys, I think it puts them in this just constant barragement of stress and pressure, and it creates diamonds. Or if you're a weak player, you're weak-minded, you get kind of caught up fast. It, 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 you find your weak players, you find your strong players. Dwayne Bacon is a perfect example of that. He was awesome in the G League. We'd bring him back up. It didn't work. He'd go back down to the G League. He'd kick butt. He'd come back up. It didn't work. And that is the kind of thing that gets a player ready for constant change, which is exactly what a young player needs to be able to do. Not just for their career in Charlotte, because obviously I'm biased, but their career when they switch teams. You know, I'm an all-star free agent. Charlotte, they've been Uh, they've been sucking for the past 10 years. I'm going to go and change. I'm going to, I'm going to pull a Kimba. I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I want to go win a ring. I need to be ready to go and play for another team. So to me, he's developing these guys, not just for their careers in Charlotte, but for as professional basketball players. And I obviously don't have a lot of um, information on this, but he's probably making them really good, strong men as well, just in in life. So I'm, I'm really happy with the
2: development of the Charlotte Hornets so far. Uh, I, I am too. And it brings me to my next point. When you look at how James Booknight and J.T. Thor played uh, under emergency call-up conditions with half the lineup in protocol uh, the the other night in that first game against Philly. J.T. Thor's first NBA basket was putting Andre Drummond on a Louvre-worthy, uh, Louvre-worthy poster. Louvre, sorry, Louvre-worthy poster. James Booknight pulled a page out of Miles Bridges' book and went in uncontested on a, on a rebound and cocked it back and threw it down. Um, we saw how well both those guys played in Summer League. That can't be translated, of course, but to come up under emergency conditions like that from Greensboro and play as well as they did against a top-five team in the Eastern Conference gives you gives you a lot of food for thought. Charlotte right now needs to kind
1: of, you know, and I usually am the type of person to say, let's look at our weak points and uh, work on that, not just in sports, but in 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 your career or in this or in that. Charlotte right now needs to actually just kind of stick with what's good and, and, and keep it going. And to me, that's the, that's the spread out scoring that we're seeing from the top five guys. And I was kind of explaining this to my dad who really only watches his College ball, when you look at the top five scores on our team, they're all almost averaging pretty much the exact same points. Uh, Miles Bridges is only by 0.2 points our leading scorer per game with 20.2 points. Then Lamella Ball is behind him with 20 even. Then Terry Rozier, 17.7. Then Gordon Hayward, 17.6. And then Kelly Oubre rounds off the top five with 16.7. When you look at that kind of spread out scoring, what does that tell you? To me, that tells me, okay, look, any of these guys can be reliable. We can have one, maybe even two guys have an off night, as long as someone else can pick up the pieces. Uh, PJ Washington is the next highest score for those who are curious at 10.5 points, which to me seems a little low. When you watch him play, um, you would think, oh my God, he's actually uh, quite – um. He's actually scoring a whole lot more points. And that to me actually comes with PJ Washington's uh, shooting percentage out of the top six that I just mentioned. He has the second highest or excuse me, third highest shooting percentage. So it's not that he's scoring in bunches. It's just that when he takes a good shot, it usually goes in. And that's the kind of stuff that you can rely on as a player. Uh, That's the kind of stuff that you can rely on as a fan. You kind of know exactly when it's going to come in and out. Um, When you play like that, when you take good shots, when you want to see other guys take good shots, when you don't really care how many you score at night, when you have a team of 15 guys who don't look at the box score the next day and say, oh man, I could have got a triple double if I did this, that, and the other, or if I had played this differently, or maybe I even could have scored 30 and bumped up my average. It seems like the Charlotte Hornets, for the first time um, in my lifetime, are all a group of guys who say, all right, how can we win this game? And how can we prepare ourselves to win the next game? They don't look at 82 games. They don't look at playoffs. They don't look at this. They don't look at that. They say, we're going to win this game tonight, and then we're going to take a break. We're going to look at film, and we're going to get back to the next game. Even your young guys are looking at film like crazy.
2: You said it. This is the first Hornets team I can remember in quite some time that is taking the game-by-game the game cliche to heart. Mm-hmm and is not looking at the big picture. I mean when you look at the just the the fight of those two Sixers games down half the lineup. Kelly Oubre, uh Miles Bridges, guys Gordon Hayward, guys that knew they needed to step up just that one night and play their tails off. And everybody they motivated everyone behind them. Thor, Book Knight, Ish Smith. Um to step up and play big roles. Nick Richards has been playing really, really well in his um, extended playing time to this point. So, look, when when you lose guys like that and have been dealing with the injuries that this team has been dealing with throughout the year, even when you don't get the win, it has to be appreciated, the the, the heart, the fight, the, the grit of, of this group, the mentality that this team has that, all right, even if we're down a few guys, we're not going down without a fight. There, There's fight, and that's different.
1: Well, I think it makes it harder for you to be able to come in and play them. Here's the thing, Brett, and, and, and you and I talked about this a little bit off air uh, a few weeks ago after one of the losses was – it doesn't matter that we lost a game. As long as it looked to the outside world that it was a really tough win for the other team, that is a victory in and of itself. If we can only win by just so, or maybe just barely kind of blow out a team, and then all of our losses are basically us getting steamrolled, that is going to increase the confidence when a team flies into Charlotte. And that's not what you want. You want to win the mental game. When you look at a team like Philadelphia, who is currently now on a downward trajectory because the process well, just didn't turn out right, I was kind of correct about that, and I kind of was trying to tell everybody and warn people. Uh, I wasn't really a genius of basketball back then, but I anyone who knows basketball should have been able to know the process wasn't going to work. I tried to warn everybody just saying uh, Ben Simmons's peak was at his uh, rookie year, just saying. Um, when you look at all that stuff, you're like, oh, my God, I'm uh, – phoenix i know no i actually have to try in this game i have to play hard and what does that mean for your ben simmons what does that or excuse me what does that mean for your devin booker your chris paul okay they're gonna keep playing the same game but when you look at your your mikhail bridges and some of the other guys who are on these teams who are are your your leverage players your guys who can put pressure when needed your um tyler hero for miami heat your uh your um Just guys like that, guys who I don't like calling them role players, but they're certainly not the reliable superstars of today's game. That's the kind of guys that you're getting in their head and saying, oh, man, I actually have to try. I actually have to perform. I actually have to really do a good game. Otherwise, we could lose this. This could be my loss. And obviously, no one looks at it that way. But certainly the players, at least in the back or the front of their minds, certainly are aware of that concept. And when you beat a team like Philadelphia or lose to them only just and allow an MVP candidate of M. Joel Embiid to have to score 45 to do it, it's a really good loss. And you 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 were you happy about it. You're proud of it. You don't want to lose the game, obviously, but you're proud of what you earned.
2: Yeah, and, and you, you said this to me the other night, and you summed it up perfectly. Especially with how short-handed the team was, you made Joel Embiid score 40 points to beat you. Mm-hmm. When 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 things like that happen, you're happy with it because okay, we made their best guy beat us. We didn't let you know Danny Green beat us. We didn't let you know No Name Johnson you know on the other team beat us. We made their best guy beat us. And we we
0: we can be we can be happy with that. That no name Johnson though, what a guy!
1: MVP candidate of nineteen ninety seven. I mean, but that's that's such a good last name to pick though. At no name Johnson. There's, I guarantee you, every year there's a guy named Johnson who scores twenty five, and
2: you're like, who in the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> there is. There, that's why I picked it because there's always a you know. Uh, J- Jamarian Johnson or right. Austin oh, Smith.
1: I mean, Brett, you and I are Hornets fans. Do you remember when Al Jefferson was our best player? And people would come into Charlotte, you know, uh, they'd be fans of other markets, and they'd say, who the hell is Al Jefferson?
2: Yeah, and we and then got... then dropped 30 well, on him. Like, this is a big-time <laughs> big free agent we got, and other people would be like, who the... Who's this guy that's been in Utah for six years? <laughs> i will be happy when we got Larry Hughes at the
0: trade deadline and other people are like, wow, okay.
2: Congratulations.
0: I, re- I remember watching the Heat and Hornets games and Hassan Watsai was our center at the time. And I'm a Heat fan, of course. And Hassan Watsai cannot guard Al Jefferson. I was like, what are you doing? Al
2: Jefferson in his prime in Charlotte was virtually unguardable.
1: He was at least a one-time All-Star. Um, Obviously, he didn't actually <laughs> – no, he didn't make the game, right? He didn't no. actually get selected, but he was certainly at least one he of the He was years snubbed. Like, like, oh, my God. Like, I remember having to try and play against them on freaking 2K, which obviously, for us, we talk about sports. We don't play in sports. So, for us, that's the real deal. That's us suiting up for the big leagues. You know, when we Correct. play a little video game. Correct. I literally was so paranoid. in watching him play, I remember one time, my first Hornets game ever – It was the Oklahoma City Thunder with Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and Sergi Baca like a long, long time ago uh, playing the Hornets. Uh, I remember Al Jefferson blocked when a Russell Westbrook shot so hard. I was in the upper bowl. I had like a terrible ticket. I heard the ball slap the floor on the other end of the court so incredibly hard it bounced up into about 15 rows up. And I was like, Jesus Christ, who is this guy? Al- <laughs> like, dude, chill out. You're also overweight. You need to go on a diet. But still, I mean, Al, holy moly. And then that's all you get for the rest of the game. You get like 15 points. You don't really actually ever remember him scoring. But then you look at the box score and you're like, how did he do this? Where, when, when did he get all of these statistics? Um, obviously, it didn't lead to wins. But, but still, I mean, sneakily good.
0: Perhaps the only guy who couldn't guard Al Jefferson in his prime in Charlotte. Was probably Brian Scalabrini.
1: I'd say. Well, I mean, Brian Scalabrini, goat candidate, which obviously, yeah, overdone joke. I will never top five player of
2: all time. Come on, White Mamba. I mean,
1: Michael, tell us about your Miami Heat, bear, brother.
0: Yeah. So we're we're having a few issues of our own right now. Um so, you. Yeah. Well, obviously, Bam Adebayo's out. So at a position we were really thin at. After Adebayo, we're even thinner now. Um, we're relying on Dwayne Dedman and Yurtseven, and we're relying on KZ Paula, who's traditionally like a small forward. See, again,
2: um, this is a situation in which he's naming people I have no idea about.
0: I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: surprised you guys aren't giving Precious Achua more minutes. Oh, my God, he doesn't play for you guys anymore. When did you guys get rid of Precious Achua?
0: Well, we got rid of Precious Chua and Goran Drogic in the trade for Kyle Lowry. Oh, which it apparently was. we got fined for, and we lost a draft pick, but it's whatever.
1: I but, just realized he got sent to Toronto.
0: Yeah, <laughs> was it worth it? <laughs> um, yeah, my defense, I, I, I watched you or Toronto play. I, I would, I would say it's worth it. Uh, Kyle Lowry is. I'm, I'm. I was a huge fan of Goran Dragic. Um I still love the Dragon. Don't get me wrong. But it's interesting to see an actual quarterback. It's like having a dual-threat quarterback in your Mm -hmm. offense for a football team. Like Kyle Lowry gets everyone involved, and then he goes and goes off for 26 or 20. And it works. Um, But recently, it's it's not been great. We've lost six of our last 10. And our last eight games, we've given up more than 100 points, which says something about this Miami Heat team, which – is very defensive minded, um, but much like in Charlotte's case, where we have several guys out. Like, there's been a few games where we've had guys step up. Like, um, Caleb Martin comes out of nowhere, and again, that's a no name Johnson right there. He has a twin. Uh, he he was he was more of a name in college. Um, he went off for 28, and Apollo was our lead and rebounder uh, the other night against Milwaukee, a game we beat. Um, the other night we had Max Struess go off for 25 against the Bucks again. That was a loss. Um, but to beat a team like Milwaukee or to be a team, uh, in Chicago in this last stretch with, without your main guys is, uh, saying something. And I am so glad, uh, J-Dub talked about Tankathon because, uh, Tankathon also has Miami, uh, with a similar strength of schedule as Charlotte, um, like a pull, like one thousandth more of a strength. Uh, well, you guys will finish with season. the second seed this year. I I, I swear to God,
1: yeah. Miami is good, and you're better than Chicago. I honestly think Milwaukee. I'm not going to say they're not going to perform in the playoffs. I think they will not have a great regular season.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm seeing Brooklyn finish in the first seed. Oh, absolutely, and I'm saying. It, it's either going to be Milwaukee or Chicago. One of those two teams will fall off. I don't expect both of them to fall off. Um, but I, I'm saying if Miami gets a three seed, they'll be okay. Um, but at the end of the day, it does come to playoffs. The, most of this team has experienced the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned about this team. Uh, once they get Adebayo out, he'll be out for another uh, three to five weeks maybe. Um, which is obviously a huge blow, but it's given these guys like Yurtsev and Struus and Akpala, um, several of these guys, more minutes, um, Gabe Vincent, who are just like no-name Johnsons. They make less than two mil a year, and it's going to create depth to where if we – have to lose Adebayo or Butler or Lowry or Hero or Robinson for a game or two in the playoffs because of COVID or whatever have you, like these guys have enough minutes in the regular season. They could come in, plug in, and start making their way uh, to the bucket.
1: You know, it's funny when people talk about the Miami Heat here in North Carolina because one thing I've always noticed, even though the – Wizards exist and even though the Hawks exist and uh, the Hortons obviously exist, I would say this is a Miami Heat secondary market. I really, I really believe that early and truly I've met so many Heat fans who've been around um far longer than the LeBron James era. They've been a fan uh, when Dwayne Wade got there or this or that, well, that was going to be my question <laughs> was, did they become one when LeBron went there? Yeah, but that's what I, I find it so incredibly fascinating. That This is to me a Heat secondary market. I really think so. I've met a ton of Heat fans. I personally have a love-hate relationship with the Heat. Personally, I love and respect the people that are around the team, whether it be Eric Spolstra, uh, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, um, all of management and ownership and coaching but I hate the team simply because they expanded the same year the Hornets did. They have the exact same number of games played. And they have three titles and we have zero. And you start to wonder how much of that is because Miami is a little bit more hospitable than Charlotte in the winter.
0: Miami would be a nice place to live. I'm still trying to make I, yeah. my way down there for <laughs> a game and maybe a beach vacation. But yeah. with, the, uh, with the LeBron thing, I think... Miami still lost a lot of I, – I, I don't even want to call them fans um, because they are on the LeBron bandwagon, and they just jump to, oh, he's in Cleveland. Oh, he's in Miami. Oh, he's back in Cleveland. Oh, he's with the Lakers. Oh, my gosh, I've been a Lakers fan since I was born. And it just it just irks me so much. Um, and I, ca- I catch flack for, oh, you're a Heat fan because of – LeBron, no. My first like season I was getting into the NBA was like the year before LeBron came, because the NBA Finals that year was the Celtics and Lakers, and I was my dad was kind of a Celtics fan, kind of. He's not big in the NBA. I was like, okay, let's go Celtics. And my two favorite players of that year was Ray Allen and Dwayne Wade, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll rock with Miami. I'll rock with Miami. And then Ooh, LeBron like comes a seventh seed
1: at the time. Yeah. In your defense. They were like not the greatest team ever.
0: Mm. Um, and then LeBron comes, we win a couple tiles, and then he leaves, and everyone else seems to be a Cleveland fan all of a sudden. I'm like, Why would you be a Cleveland fan in North Carolina? And I'm like, I don't oh,
1: care how good they that's are. Why. <laughs> It's still Ohio. I mean, guys, uh, seriously, you got to cheer for anything that has anything to do with Ohio. That's just tough to me. I think the next greatest team to see a, a massive surge of fans outside of the Warriors here in North Carolina were the Bucks. I mean, I see so many people wearing in Bucks gear, and I'm like, that's just kind of bland. But I guess I kind of respect it. Small market, you know. I always cheer for a small market victory. For me, when Milwaukee won. It was a big victory just for, okay, small market basketball can work. It, it, it can maybe sometimes figure it out.
0: Yeah, give credit to Milwaukee. I, I was surprised this didn't come when uh, Jabari Parker was on the team. I was, I was really high on Jabari uh, coming out of Duke. I'm also a Duke fan, and I was like, okay, Milwaukee has – Jabari, they have this some six ten guy named Giannis. Hopefully, they can teach him how to play basketball. And boy, was I wrong!
1: <laughs> oh my god, I I remember one of my first years. This probably was maybe my my like second full year like watching Hornets basketball. Our home opener was against Milwaukee, and it was weird because we had already, our first game was against Milwaukee, and then like two or three games later, we had to we, our home opener was against Milwaukee as well. And I remember us blowing them out, and some random kid that nobody's name they could pronounce scored 25 on like terrible efficiency, and I was like, well, you had to shoot a 1,000 shots to get 25 points. This kid's never going to be anything. And I honestly kind of enjoy more that I was wrong about Giannis than if I was ever right about it. I I really relish the fact that I was totally wrong about him, because those pleasant surprises of a player coming up are always more uh, satisfying than oh, this player's going to be good, and you end up being right, or this team's going to suck, and you end up being right. Being pleasantly surprised by an individual within your sport is incredibly satisfying, and I'll never, ever give up that.
0: And if, and if we want to poke a little fun at Cleveland again, Giannis was cool. drafted the same year as Anthony Bennett won overall to Cleveland.
1: Oh, that was one of the worst drafts in history. I mean uh, – uh, so many people passed on him, Charlotte included, Boston included, Portland included, um, so many teams that were actually half decent, that actually happened to make their way into the lottery, maybe a team that fell that way into because of injury. That is one of the most f- fascinating drafts in history. Obviously, people go to 03 for best drafts, or you know most fascinating drafts, or they go to a bad draft, but here's the thing. There were so many teams that could have used his talent and what he had to offer that it's almost pathetic when you look at how many teams passed on him. It's almost just like, wow, you guys didn't have any faith. You guys had negative faith. I mean, seriously, by the time Giannis got drafted, everybody just considered that kid a random guess. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's, it, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. I don't know if there's like a video essay or anything on it, but certainly go and look at that draft and look how everyone ahead of Giannis has turned out.
2: Just think. Giannis Kumpo was at one point a no-name Johnson. Um, speaking of tanking, because we talked about Tankathon, um, that's a big gripe within Major League Baseball. And uh, in our last segment coming up, uh, we'll talk about why that's been a big contributing factor uh, to the uh, still ongoing MLB lockout here on The Score. Back here on the score with Brett Wiseman on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brett Wiseman alongside James Wilson once again. Thank God. uh, Missed you, buddy. Um, Let's talk about this MLB lockout um, and why it's happening, what's led to it happening. Um, First of all, a lot of you heard us talk about it on the show that it was inevitable that was. Um the things that the players association had been less than impressed with um were gonna stretch far beyond December first. It was never there was never gonna be a deal by December first. Regardless. That's why you saw, you know, the one day in baseball where two billion dollars were spent by a number of teams on free agents to you know, get those guys locked up before um, the lockout hit. Um, for Manfred and the head of the union, Tony Clark, to have these contradictory statements, Rob Manfred talking about, oh, we tried this, that, and the other thing. They didn't want to talk about it. Uh, we imposed the lockout as a bargaining ploy. Um, the union said, there's no legal obligation for them to impose a lockout. They chose to, uh, to bait us. Um, look, Tony Clark and Rob Manfred do not like each other. And a lot of the players do not like Rob Manfred. So, when that's the case, I mean, you're you're almost up a creek without a paddle until you get back to that negotiation table. Um, the one big thing, and we teased it before the break that the players are concerned with is they wanted um, they wanted the revenue sharing to be shuffled so that it would not encourage tanking. Um, The one thing that the players association has been upset with, especially since the Astros won their world series as a result of tank and cheating, uh, tanking Um, they tanked for, you know, seven, eight years, stocked up those draft picks Altuve, Correa, all those guys were Astros first-round picks after winning, you know, losing 110 games a year basically on purpose. And the Orioles now are 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 seen doing the same thing. That's how they get a guy like Cedric Mullins that was an AL MVP candidate. The Players Association is that they think there's more incentive in teams tanking than and getting good draft picks, and there's more importance now on the draft than there has been probably ever in Major League Baseball because of what the Astros have done. Um, The Players Association wants the revenue sharing to be shifted so that it almost forces those mid- to small-market teams with lower payrolls that have had success from just flipping and going to tanking. Like, Oakland, like Tampa Bay, that have had success without spending money. This encourages those teams to, instead of tanking or just kind of staying mediocre, they want Major League Baseball to almost force them to spend a little bit more money in free agency, and it also gives them, as players, more of an option of places to go. So you understand that, but from the league and the ownership standpoint, they don't want to spend the money.
1: Right. I think what you've got is you've got players who are presenting quite a quite a healthy idea of just kind of fixing how we're going to handle, one, money, but two, player free agency destinations. And ultimately, as a small market, you want to be able to attract free agents. But here's the thing. If you're a small market you don't want to pay a player, what else do you have to offer? If you are a team where living conditions are not the greatest, weather is not the greatest, things that you cannot control are not the greatest, but you're still refusing to not give up the one thing you can control, that becomes a problem. That becomes a team who's too greedy and just kind of expects things to be entitled to them. I think what the MLB Players Association have presented is a healthy idea because, one, it's going to remove tanking. Just like you said, it's going to help increase the, the effort put, Um, through all 160 games. And two, what you have here is another player's association who has slowly allowed power to shift out from under themselves, and you've got a group of unhappy players who much rather would be playing in a league that treats them fairly, treats them better. And this is the problem, is you look at teams and leagues like the NBA, right? The NBA is considered a player's association and they're happy, they enjoy what they do, they have fun while doing it, and they have a huge say when it comes down to it. And ultimately, as a as a commissioner of a league, you cannot forget you have nothing without a season being put on. Your product is the game being played by the players. If you refuse to allow that to go on, the MLB will find something else.
2: Right, and... Look, I, I sided with the players from the beginning of all the discussions from the shortened season, the the truncated pandemic season. There was so much back and forth with that, and I sided with the players, and I continue to. Now, Major League Baseball said, and Rob Manfred said this in his comments on day one of the lockout, Um fired shots at the players' association saying, Oh, we presented them with, you know, revamping the luxury tax threshold and eliminating draft pick compensation for free agent signings, which I think should have been done a long time ago, because that's just that's a pointless thing. And it discourages teams from spending money in free agency. Um because they have to give up a draft pick. Because we just discussed the importance of the draft. I mean, look at I'm going to use my bias again for a second. Look at the St. Louis Cardinals. Albert Pujols goes to the Angels. They get a first-round pick as compensation for him leaving. That first-round pick, two years later, ends up being the MVP of the NLCS and Michael Walker. There you go. So now the Angels look at it as, okay, yep, cool. We just lost that guy um, who had that kind of potential uh, because we went out and spent money. So now we're you know, discouraged from spending money again. Right, uh, and 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 that's not the first time or the first instance, and that wasn't the last instance that that happened since this draft pick compensation thing was introduced. But by the same token, if teams are encouraged to spend money, if that's eliminated, which I think should be the case, MLB thought that they could you know bank on that and then not really fix everything else. Um, they thought that by MLB thought that by expanding the playoffs to 14 teams and the format in which they presented it was going to entice the Players Association to sign the dotted line on November 30th. They said, "Okay, we'll give you a 14-team playoff. We'll give you four. We'll give you half the league, basically. Half the league makes the playoffs, which is the case in a lot of other leagues. But in baseball, it it, it just doesn't work like that. I could see you know 12-team playoff, 10-team playoff, but." The way 10 it's, is the perfect number. Ten would be the perfect number. Baseball's not a sport like the rest of the big four, where you put in almost half the league and it's still competitive.
1: Well, I think you the more teams you put 14 team playoff, basically you're slapping in the face teams who won this marathon
2: of a season. They play the most games out of any major league sport. And it, yet it, 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 makes, it doesn't it you, doesn't fix it doesn't fix the only problem I have with the current format, which is the Giants won 106 games. The Dodgers win 105 games. And the Dodgers prize for winning 105 games is, is a one-game playoff for your life against the Cardinals who snuck in there.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a slap in the face. It's literally. And here's the thing. To we me, me that just Cardinals does fans. the same
2: thing because if you, the division winners get buys in this format. Everyone else is a wild card. The division winners get, would then get to pick who they play. Out of the wild card rounds. That just doubles down on what your biggest issue is right now. I think Rob Manfred has
1: a lot of work to do. Um, do we know where he lives? Because I would really like to pay him a visit and just kind of have a little chit chat with him. I just, I
2: just want to. What's, what's that Family Guy clip? Yeah. Where
1: he's, I, yeah. I just want to j- just talk to him. I just, I just, just want to, to talk, talk to him. I mean, seriously. And here's the thing is that. Right now we're in lockout season, going into February. What we have to understand is when a lockout happens, you're basically operating on a, about a month to a month and a half behind the schedule. It is so incredibly hard to say, "All right, cool, we're, we're, we're going to play, we're going to agree." You're not. If we if, okay, if we agree to play now, that doesn't mean we're starting up on time, even though it's months away from now. No, you, these venues, these other things. If I'm Minute Maid Park Ownership Group, I'm scheduling concerts. I'm doing everything I can. I cannot afford to go two to three months without nothing in my building. I need to generate that revenue. Keeping an o- Keeping an arena clean, safe, open costs a crap ton of money. It's expensive stuff. So this is the problem you have when an arena who hosts a team, especially one that's multi-purpose, like what the Rangers have, what the Astros have, that can do all these things, you're going to start seeing, oh, well, we can't have the game here and there. The longer we wait, the shorter the schedule is going to be, the less legitimate people are going to treat this season, and guess what? The less people are going to watch. It's not going to be like, oh, it's a 50 game in, in, in MLB season. How cool. Oh, my God, everyone's going to have so many legs. No, they're going to say, Oh, awesome. No one actually playing any games. This really means nothing. It's And that's it's what you saw short. in that
2: truncated season was, okay, the Marlins were at what thirty eight, two, and twenty eight or something like that, and they get in it and they beat a Cubs team that was not a whole lot better than that. right. Um you you see mediocrity kind of come to the forefront. Um, that's what's going to happen if you add this this 14 team format in, and that's why the Players Association. That was the last day of these negotiations. You want to know how long that last day of negotiations, that last session, lasted? Probably about 45 minutes. Seven minutes. Ooh. The Players Association was presented with that and walked out of the room in Irving, Texas, and has not returned to a table to sit down with major league baseball until they come up with something better than that. Because in their mind, that was, that was weak from what the players association said. Look, all the players association wants is more choices for them and a more competitive aspect of the season. They don't want parts of the season where they go into it and they go into a weekend where they play the pirates and they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to, we're going to kill them. You know, um, They don't go into a stretch of their schedule where they have to play all these teams that are woefully under 500 and not trying. Um, They want competition because they are competitors by nature. Uh, They also want more choices of where to go uh, because if anything, a lot of those guys relish the opportunity of going to a Tampa Bay or going to a Pittsburgh and helping carry them back to success or keeping them on a successful track if, like Tampa Bay, you've been a successful mid to small market club. There's there's a there's a lure there for them to to go to these places. Corey Seager going to the Rangers, for example. The Rangers have spent a spent a ton of money um, after being a bottom of the barrel team in the AL West last year. So, um, look, that's a that's a larger market, and they have that kind of capital. So, what the Players Association looks at it as is okay. If Texas can spend the money after being terrible, Tampa Bay should be able to do the same thing after being successful to be able to sustain that. Um, A a team like Kansas City should be able to return to a point of success from a point of poverty, so to speak, um, and should not be discouraged from spending money because they're giving up draft picks. That Because they get a bigger share of the pie, too. The the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Giants and this, that, and the other thing should not have 75% of the revenue share and be able to spend all of this money. And Kansas City is just left hanging. Arizona is just left hanging. Colorado is just left hanging.
1: Right now, Brett,
2: my question for
1: you is when do you expect an agreement to be reached?
2: When do you think the season will kick off? And how many games will be played? I think MLB Network's Greg Amsinger put it best um, when he said if there is a delay, and I think there will be, um, because just the way these negotiations are going, it's not pretty. Um, I think we end up with a late March, a mid to late March uh, spring training and a mid to late April opening day, but we still play 162 games which means the postseason would stretch well into November, but I'm fine with that. Um, I think that's what ends up ends up happening. Um, the good thing about this is that it's not like the strike of 1994, which canceled the World Series. It's not like other work stoppages that have happened in season. Um, this is happening in the offseason and beginning at a point where, um, okay, okay, we got to sit down. Both sides have to sit down and really figure out where they stand and then come back. But again, th- these negotiations have been ugly, uh, to say the least. So we'll, we'll we'll see where things go going forward. Uh, got to wrap it up for today, J-Dub. Thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, will you be back with us next week? absolutely i'll hope to be on the show i don't see why i
1: wouldn't we are going to have a good one i think um a lot of big yeah. things coming in tobacco road sports radio
2: a lot of big things coming we'll get to uh, all the bowl games and all that stuff uh next week and let you know where everything stands there um it'll be our last show before we go live uh, we'll go on a, a christmas break and then we'll come back uh january 7th uh after next week so stay tuned for that big things coming In the world of sports this weekend as well, Uh, be glued to your TV because a lot of good things are happening. Hey, guess what? MLS Cup is this week too, and uh, Charlotte FC just unveiled their kits uh, uh, a little bit ago. So uh, exciting things happening all over the place. For James Wilson, Michael Davis, Alex Wober, Steve Wiseman, our producer Desmond Johnson, Brett Wiseman saying so long for this week. Have a safe one, everybody.